The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Blacking in and out in a strange flat in East London Somebody I don't really know just gave me something to help settle me down And to stop me from always thinking about you and you know your life is heading in a questionable direction. Hey music fans, we got a good one lined up for you. Today's guest is singer-songwriter Frank Turner from Me and Stoke, Hampshire, England. And we break down his 2013 hit Recovery from the album Tape Deck Heart. Frank takes us through a play-by-play behind the song's inspiration and how it was called from a very dark moment in his life. We talk about some of his favorite singer-songwriters whose storytelling have influenced Frank's own work. He shares a really cool story of being on tour for months on end in America, only to return home to England and find that recovery, unbeknownst to him, roaring up the English radio charts. And who knew that Frank dabbled in botany and has a bit of a green thumb? Prior to this, I didn't. For all this and a whole lot more, stick around for some fun. Frank uh, hails from uh, Meanstoke, which I, I had the correct pronunciation the first time uh, but before you we did. started rolling you, here. You nailed it. And that's in Hampshire, England. And, uh, you know, Frank, I had heard, you know, because Less Than Jake's done a ton of touring, as you know, over in the UK. Yeah, it's yeah. like our, our home away from home. Uh, I had certainly heard of your post-hardcore band Million Dead. But I yeah. didn't realize you were in it until I started researching for this episode, and I went back, and oh. Million Dead wasn't a small band. I mean, you guys were out there, <laughs> you know? We, you, you were... know, thank you. I mean, Million Dead, I, I'm, I'm fiercely proud of Million Dead. Um, we got to a point, I think we once played to 800 people at a headline show, and we kind of thought we were the clash at that point, I'm pretty sure. Um, and <laughs> that we, but we never really toured outside the UK. We did a handful of shows in Europe, and we did a couple of showcases in the States. But um, it's it's a shame to me, looking back, that we didn't we didn't really know how to tour outside the UK. Um, and having now done it, it's not the hardest thing to get going. Um, and I wish we'd done more of that, but the band didn't last that long. So... It's a shame, but thank you. Well, no, I went back. I saw you guys had done done some festivals, and and you definitely had yeah. uh, had your pockets of fans. And there's there's many bands that would have uh, given their left leg to to do what you guys accomplished. <laughs> well, you know, that's true. That's true. The, the band split up in 2005, and yeah. you know, I I had read online, and and I, I want to get this actual uh, f- actually from you that uh, around this time <laughs> you had heard uh, uh, Springsteen's Nebraska, and it kind of singer songwriter kind of changed your 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 thinking of where you wanted to go career-wise yeah i mean that's that's a that's a kind of very condensed version of the story that seems to have taken root on um, the internet in various places and it's not untrue but it wasn't just that record it was a whole selection of stuff i was playing in a kind of hardcore band i was touring with other hardcore bands and you reach a point where you can't then listen to hardcore when you're lying in your bunk at the end of the night on the tour bus or whatever because you'd lose (laughs) your mind or at least i would um and you know um i was banging to the first cat and crow's 
Rose record when I was a kid and Weezer and stuff like that, but had then gone down the rabbit hole of being obsessed with hardcore, basically, uh, you know. Uh, and I, I sort of, I, I started branching out in my listening and there was a few things that I stumbled across and Springsteen Nebraska is one of them. Prior to that, my knowledge of Springsteen was that he was the guy in the white t-shirt and the blue jeans singing about America <laughs> and it didn't, didn't grab me. Um, in any way, uh, and I wasn't I wasn't really aware of the depth to his career at all. Sure. Um, my parents weren't really into any kind of modern music, so my entire knowledge of modern music was sort of self created. The first band I fell in love with was Iron Maiden, and I had this. Uh, by the time I reached my early twenties, I could have I could have literally listed you every single Sick of It All record in order, and I couldn't. I don't think I'd ever heard a Bob Dylan song. Um, do you know right. what I mean? So I had this kind of weird topsy-turvy thing anyway. So I got into kind of early Dylan. I got into Springsteen, Nebraska. The Johnny Cash American Recording Series was quite a useful gateway for me because he covered stuff like Nine Inch Nails and Soundgarden and that kind of thing. So that was a way of, of, of listening into that world. And I guess the thing is, for me, and to pick an example from Nebraska, like a song like State Trooper. State Trooper is heavy as fuck. Do you know what I mean? That's and, mm-hmm. and like it's heavy in a way that doesn't involve taking your shirt off and screaming at the front row and having a shaved head and tattoos and kind of sweat and testosterone. It's heavy in a very different way. It's emotionally heavy. That was a big reveal to me in my early 20s. Um, And when Million Dead broke up, the other thing that had happened, of course, is that the band didn't end particularly well. It was a very long time ago now, so I can talk about it with a degree of detachment. But at the time, I felt pretty burned by the whole thing. Um, And I sort of felt like I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to just do another hardcore band. Um, I didn't want to be in a band full stop at the time because I felt like, again, I'm old enough now to kind of see that it was more nuanced than this, but at the time I felt like I'd been let down by other people with the band breaking up. And and it was like, what can I do that's just me under my own steam? I don't have to depend on other people that's going to be different. Oh, I had an acoustic guitar. I used to play acoustic guitar on beach holidays with my sister and sing Weezer songs and Cat and Crow songs and stuff like that. Uh, soul Asylum, quite a lot of Soul Asylum, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and I just, and I think before Million Dead broke up, I'd done a handful of kind of like, uh, I did like a benefit show at one time. Somebody asked me to play and the whole band couldn't play, so I did a solo set. And I kind of enjoyed it. And, and it was, I just thought I'd give it a shot. It was interesting. Everyone thought I'd lost my mind at the time. As you and I both know, the, the, the pathway of kind of being in a punk band, then making an acoustic record is reasonably well established these days. Back in 2005, pretty much the only people who'd done that were Chuck Reagan and Tim Barry. Um, sure. And and it was like, I, when I told my friends, and indeed like the sort of the music industry people who I knew who'd worked with Billion Dead that I was now going to go and make solo acoustic folk music, people genuinely thought I'd gone crazy. They were just like, <laughs> what the fuck well, is wrong with you? you? I'm going to tell you the reason I brought it up, where you came from and, and, and how you did this change. A lot of hardcore singers, you know, they're kind of one trick ponies. They they just they scream and they, they scream and that's their Man, thing. I'm on tenterhooks for Rick to Life solo acoustic record. I can't <laughs> wait. It's gonna it's gonna be incredible. But it just shows the depth of you as an artist, and and I mean that with sincerity. Well, and and I just want to say something real quick. I'm going to dive into the song. Uh, Frank uh, sure. and I are going to break down recovery today. Um, hmm. You know, 
my producer Chris was recently asked, I, I believe it was in our Facebook group, you know, does Chris, meaning me, uh, does he really love, he says he loves all these songs that, that he analyzes, you know, and I'm, I don't know, 40 episodes deep or something now in this podcast, and I truly do. I do love every song, not equally, uh, and, I, and some of the songs I haven't, <laughs> some of the songs I didn't even really like or love coming into it, but when I get into the psyche of the artist and we start breaking it down and I learn the inspiration of the song, I have mm. grown to love them all in their own right. Sure. But I got to say, this song, just the first time I ever heard it, it was Goosebumps. Ab, I love this song, Frank. And I uh, don't you. recall if you remember meeting me. Probably not, because I was introduced uh, to you through Fat Mike backstage <laughs> at a festival <laughs> probably seven years in, ago. And in, uh, in which case, all bets are off. Do you know what I mean? I think, I think that there is a legal clause somewhere that if, you, if your way of knowing someone is Fat Mike, then you're not like liable for any <laughs> anything ever. Um, I do remember meeting you, because I know, I know Vinny as well, right? So we, sure. we, yeah. But no, I... I, I I remember being, uh, for lack of a better word, a little starstruck because I had already heard this song. And this this song to mm. me is just, I love it. So um, getting into this one, I have so much to talk about. This particular tune, um, the record that you had done, uh, the previous album was England, uh, Keep My Bones. And that came out in yeah. June of June of 2011, and then, of course, uh, Recovery is on Tape Deck Heart that was released in April of 2013. Was yeah. this song written specifically for Tape Deck Heart? Is it something you had lying around, and uh, just um, kind of ha- how did it happen? Generally speaking, I don't sort of I don't do masses in the way of kind of like allocating songs to different stockpiles. Generally speaking, I just kind of write and then look at what I've got, and it becomes a record. And what the theme and the feel of the record is is dictated by what the material is, you know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. been exceptions to that. I did a history record called No Man's Land, and obviously the songs for that were quite specific, so they went over there. But with this one, I, I, I finished Inking Keep My Bones. Inking My Bones was kind of a breakthrough record for me in many ways. Internationally, um, it was a record. It was my first gold record. It was the first uh, time I ever headlined an arena show uh, in 2012, which was big news. And I, at that point, I also I signed a deal to license my music to, to major labels. I remain signed to extra my recordings, but we worked through some majors internationally. And it was just this moment of kind of like arrival, I want to say. Yeah. Um, and the thing was, I mean, I, again, I try not to be too directed in my writing. I don't want to like plan what to write about and then write about it. I like to just kind of let it come and then go, oh, that was interesting after the event. But the one thing I would say is that like Inky My Bones was quite bombastically themed. It was about death and it was about national identity. And that's quite sort of grandiose in its way. And at this moment in time when that had blown up and suddenly there was this much, much bigger audience interested in what I was doing, it struck me that it would be interesting to go in a different direction sort of in terms of scale of ambition and scope and subject matter at that precise moment and not to try and write an even more grandiose record, but to do the opposite and to go inwards, you know, and to try and write something really, really small and and personal and intense. And that was, of course, aided by the fact that I would gone through... And, and all of this is related. I'd gone through a pretty kind of unpleasant breakup at around that period of time. Um, I had a long-term partner. I'm not sure that we were destined to spend the rest of our lives together anyway. But nevertheless, the fact of things becoming much more successful for me did no favours for our relationship in a way that I'm sure you can know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> You'd think it would, and, but it doesn't. <laughs> right. And, and um, you know, so... And and then the, the final part of that puzzle is that, like, there's a lot of great breakup records in the world, right? Um, the one that immediately springs to mind for me would be August and Everything After by The Crows. But um, mm-hmm. almost all of them are written from the point of view of the victim. You know what I mean? It's like, 
I've, I am suffering. Someone has done me wrong. My life is awful because yes. I got dumped kind of thing. And it's, it's a rich scene for songwriting, let's be honest. It's because it's a very oh, emotional yeah. experience. But at the same time, it struck me that there's not that many breakup records written from the point of view of the perpetrator. Do you know what I mean? And it was huh. like... And, and, and I was the perpetrator in this situation. And I fucked it up. I fucked it up profoundly. And it was my fault. And I did a lot of things that I'm not proud of and ended up hurting somebody I cared about and, and in this really, really shitty situation that was entirely self-created. And I started writing about that stuff anyway because that's what was happening to me emotionally at the time and my emotional experiences tend to end up in songs. But it just... I just thought it'd be kind of interesting. What if there was a breakup record that was written by the bad guy? And that was that was kind of where my head was at, was like, let's do something that's like... And, and I had this idea of like, let's make this record as intense and impersonal and as unforgiving to myself as I possibly mm-hmm. can. You know, yeah. um, there's a song on the record called Plain Sailing Weather, and it's like, give me one fine day of Plain Sailing Weather, I can fuck up anything. And that's an entire song about being an asshole. And it's a very strange experience to have people sing that song back at me live, because I'm like... <laughs> Are you are you agreeing or are you sympathizing? Because yeah. hmm, yeah. do you know what I mean? That's there's different things going on here. But yeah, so it was it was um that that was the kind of general kind of emotional milieu that I was in. I was trying to write about that kind of stuff, and um, I think from memory that recovery was one of the first songs that I finished for the record. And uh, like a lot of my songs, the initial sparking off point was a kind of a snapshot image or experience which was very real which is that not long after we'd broken up i feel like this is long enough now that now i go that i can be completely true in this <laughs> truthful in this story Let, let's hear it i i ended up going to a birthday party of a model right <laughs> in uh in a warehouse in fashionable east london you which cheeky is like twat. well the thing is that is not a kind of social environment in which I'd ever really been before or since, because it's really not the kind of shit that I do. Um, but I, ended, I was recently single. I was recently successful. And it was I got an invite. And I was like, ah, fuck it, let's go. Um, and I ended up over there. And at the time, there was this new drug doing the rounds called methadrone, which was a kind of plant food, but it was basically like very, very cheap Coke, um, and which, which, which put you in a really emotionally weird situation when you were coming down as well. Um, I once took some and then in the following morning watched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and burst into tears when the king arrives at the end and it's Sean Connery. I will not allow this wedding to proceed. My lord. Unless I'm allowed to give the bride away. You look radiant, cousin. No. So it's a strange experience. and um, But anyway, I've been at this party at this model's house and it had all been very fucked up and like i was really uncomfortable i don't like that sort of scene i've never really been cool i didn't want to become cool and and i was obviously not in a particularly settled emotional place and and i met and i did that classic thing of making a phone call (laughs) towards the end of the night slash beginning of the morning um (laughs) to my to my recent ex to kind of go oh i fucked it all up i'm a complete asshole and she was just like i don't really know what you want me to say at this point but you should let me go back to sleep kind of vibe and and that was the that's the first verse of the song blacking in and out in a strange flat in east london wow uh, okay. 
okay, I, I want to get into the lyrics here in a moment, but yeah, I, I so. just I, I do have to say, and, and and sometimes I I feel like I can be self-deprecating against myself on the show, and I never want to come off as that, and I don't and I don't mean it to, uh, like I'm patronizing you either, but there's something about the singer songwriters that can tell this story of imagery through the lyrics that I've always admired. I mean, you've seen it. We've been in an, in an Irish pub and there's some bloke in the corner that's strumming with a, with a tip jar out. Nobody knows who this guy is, but you're just immersed. You, you've had a couple of pints right. and you're listening to this guy tell a story and you're like, wow, this is great. And just totally. these just these lyrics and what you do here, uh, I, I strive to be able to write a song with this kind of imagery. It just tells a story from, from the first lyric. I, I'm hooked. I'm hooked by well, what is going you. on here, and and now that I'm I'm hearing the story, it's even becoming more interesting. And and I'd like to get into this uh, <laughs> to this first verse now that you were just, you were just so, setting up. Uh, the song's three minutes and twenty eight seconds, and it, it just starts out with uh, with you and the guitar blacking in and out in a strange flat in East London. Somebody I don't really know just gave me something to help settle me down and to stop me from always thinking about you and the you is the person you were uh, bothering on the phone at yeah. four in the morning <laughs> yes exactly exactly um uh and 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 i'm not sure that it settled me down that wouldn't necessarily be the right way of putting it but uh i you know and, and the song obviously goes to other places and uses other other imagery and other events and all the rest of it but like i often find that a, a snapshot moment really works i am I, I should preface what i'm about to say by saying that there is no universe in which i am or ever will compare myself to shane mcgowan but like you know that I'm, I'm such a huge fan of the opening lines of a song because that's the moment when you, as a listener, decide whether or not you're paying attention. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Christmas Eve babe in the drunk tank. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> I'm listening. Like, I get it. What the fuck? Yeah. And it's like, and similarly, I don't know if you're familiar with the band AJJ out of uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, they used not. to be called and They used to be called Andrew Jackson Jihad. They changed oh, their name. Oh, of, of course. Obviously. Yes. Yeah, 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 they, yeah. For obvious reasons, Sean from AJJ is a dear, dear friend of mine, and he's one of my very favorite writers. And what I love about him is his mastery of the opening line in a slightly different way. But I mean, a man who can write a song that opens with the line "I want to fuck the devil in his ass," it's just like, <laughs> tell me more, sir. Do you know what I mean? Let me. <laughs> Where do I sign up? <laughs> yeah, let me hold on. Let me just make myself a cup of tea and settle down somewhere, and then we can really get into this shit because I need to know what it is you're about to say. Um, Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So, so yeah, so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very kind of you to say, like, I, I wanted to start the song with something that was, uh, would set the scene and be arresting. I love it. And as I was researching the song, I, I saw uh, you on Letterman. Uh, the performance was, oh, yeah. was <laughs> no, the, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I, 
would have loved to have been on David Letterman. Congratulations! That's like the, one of the top tier Thank things you. you could you could ever oh, do in this in the states. You know, it's it is it is of a tier that English people know what it is. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, oh like, yeah, no, but and then yeah. of course I I got down the YouTube uh, uh, line of of festivals you you had played live with this song and uh, just that you come out and you just strum that chord and you start singing and the whole crowd just lights up because that line is just it's just so great and everyone can relate this song's about getting better this song's called recovery blocking in and out in a strange flat in east london somebody i don't really know just gave me something to help settle me down to stop me from always thinking about you and you know your life is heading in a questionable direction when you're up for days of strangers and you can't remember anything except the way We get into the next half of the verse. I love how this song builds, and I want to get into Rich Costi in a bit and his production, oh, yeah. uh, what Rich <laughs> brought to this, because yeah, this yeah, song sure. this song just keeps building, and there's just such little pieces of ear candy that floating in and out. Just the subtle hi-hat comes in, and the lyric is, and you know your life is heading in a questionable direction when you're up for days with strangers and you can't remember anything except the way you sounded when you told me you didn't know what I should do. Those are just a, a continuation of where you were at with, with that night. Yeah, it's a continuation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and like, um, I, I can thankfully speak from the other end of the of the valley of this, but like I had a pretty long kind of era of substance abuse in my life. And uh, in that period of time, staying up for days was a thing that I would do quite often. You know, you go out for a night and you, you go out for a Friday night and you get home on Sunday evening um, and you haven't been to bed since. And you can't, you've no idea who the people you're hanging out with in the interim were because they were generally whoever it was who wanted to still be drinking and doing drugs at nine o'clock in the morning uh, or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and, and it's, it's a shitty way to live. And, and I speak from experience in saying that. So um, that's, but yeah, up for days with strangers. Like that was the thing. It was like, I would do that all the time. And in that kind of weird social and chemical situation, you quite often spill your guts to people that you don't know. And, right. and I'm pretty sure at that period of time, I was I was being pretty boring about my ex to most of the people who I encountered. Well, and, and as so, you know, the, the, the more popular that uh, you get, not that you get personally, but the more popular that people perceive you as, oh, Frank Turner's here. Let's hang out, you know? And, and, right. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah. You start hanging out at the pub at four in the afternoon on Friday. Next thing you know, it's uh, 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. And, and, and I, I, I get that. I love the yeah. end of this verse because... Everything so far is just kind of this singer-songwriter, just this thing, and then this big snare fill comes in. You know what I should do? I wrote in my notes here, I just put feel good party time, because when this chorus hits, <laughs> the tambourine's there, the piano's mm. there. And it's just it's goosebump city, man. There's just something Thank about you. I'm always I've always been a sucker, and it's interesting because I had read that you were a huge fan of Iron Maiden, and uh, first record you ever owned was Killers. You talked about Maiden already. Yeah, it's the 40th anniversary of the release of Killers today. Nice, that's awesome. Yeah, so there you I, go. I didn't yeah. know that, but uh, we could talk about metal in a whole other podcast. For uh, we'll save that. <laughs> we'll save, save that for the future, but. I, yeah. What I was getting at is I'm a sucker for feel-good rock and, and, and oh, rock yeah. and roll of, of any kind. And this chorus is just that. The energy of this, it just, it just really lifts. Um, it's, yeah. And the, the chorus is, it's a long road up to recovery from here. A long way back to the light. A long road up to recovery from here. A long way to making it right. 
Right, and I, I think this is the thing for me. Like, I, I, I'm a, I'm addicted to choruses. Let's say that. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like a, there's nothing I love in life more than just a chorus that punches you in the face. Yeah, and uh, and 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 thematically, not always. Every songs can be different, but like a lot of the time, for me, the purpose of a chorus, lyrically speaking, is is it's your central statement. It's what are you trying to say with this song? What is your mm-hmm. purpose here? Why are you trying to make people listen to what you're saying? And you know, that is the thing. Is like that 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 whole scenario that I was explaining is, was was a low point you know and and the only good thing to be saying about hitting the bottom is that the only way is up do you know what i mean and it's like uh, that's not to say that you automatically go up from there but it's like you can at the very least kind of cast your gaze in the right direction and that was i think the sort of feeling i was having at that point is it was just like i don't want to be this do you know what i mean i don't want to be this person sitting in this horrible flat doing plant food drugs and <laughs> um, <laughs> cry, crying about my ex-girlfriend or whatever it might be. It's like, I've got to find a way of doing something else uh, or just behaving in a different way or whatever. And you're also realizing, though, that the line is a long way to making it right. You're saying, damn, I, you know, I'm in the thick of this. Oh, side. yeah. Exa- well, this goes to what we were saying about being the bad guy. It's a record about being the bad guy. It's like, it's not, I'm not down here because somebody's done this to me. I did this to myself. You know, it's entirely my fault that I'm sitting in this kind of pit of misery and despair and blah 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 and that so, to me yeah. that to me is worse because i've done that i've been the one that that, that messed things up right. and then no one can beat me up as hard as i can <laughs> exactly yeah completely it's just like oh you you think you, just uh, there there is what i want to say to people it's like you've got a problem with me oh let me tell you i can beat you on that like i am the <laughs> olympic champion of having a problem with me but anyway so and it's interesting you mentioned the arrangement stuff i mean going to talking towards working with rich costi so what was interesting about this record for me was the first time that I was like hardcore produced as an artist. Yes. The four records I made before this were made with friends, generally speaking. And I'm pretty um, forthright in my opinions about arrangement and that kind of thing. Um, I also, you know, by this point, the Sleeping Souls, my band, were an established unit. We'd made two records together prior to this. We'd done a shit ton of rehearsals for this recording session. We'd worked out a lot of the arrangements. So I would say probably like, I'd say 50% of the arrangement ideas were mine. The next 40% were from the band. The last 10% were from Rich. But in oh, a wow. way, it's that last 10% that makes the killer difference. Do you know what I mean? So like, for example, that you're funny that you should mention the tambourine because Rich is obsessed with percussion um, <laughs> in, a, in, in a way that I now am having worked with him, but wasn't before. I never really knew any bands that had like tambourine players or whatever when I was a kid. So I just never really thought about it. Yeah. And I remember kind of jamming that chorus and it was cool and it was okay. And I was like, ah, oh, it needs to kind of groove a bit more. And which was like, just you wait, sunshine. Um, and then <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he made Nigel, my drummer at the time, play like eight percussion tracks all the way through the whole thing, like shaker, two tights, tambourine, whatever the fuck. And just blending all of that in just brought it together. But like, you know, the the piano riff is a beautiful thing. That oh, it's great. started as... It started as a as a, a little just a kind of trill on the guitar that I was mm-hmm. doing because I tend to write the songs just focus on guitar first and then take them to the band. And Matt, my piano player, took that little trill and turned it into the a much more developed part as it currently is. Also, in traditional Matt style, he's trying to play about eighteen things at the same time, so he's playing organ and piano and blah blah blah. We um, all have one of the we we all have one of those in our band. 
Yeah, there was a, there was one tour where Matt, Matt's empire of madness because he's got a little kind of keyboard station at the back of the stage. He suddenly yeah. turned around and it was like he had a mandolin and a guitar and a floor tom and like three keyboards and all this shit. And it was like, dude, chill the fuck out. Um, you need another him. trailer for him. all your shit. Right, exactly. The Matt Nazir truck. Um, but, uh, but, you know, and it, I mean, I have to say that one of the things I love about the arrangement of this song is that like it feels like us as a band firing on all cylinders. I do remember sitting around with Matt who plays piano and Ben who plays electric guitar and me with an acoustic guitar and we played that chorus around kind of swapping parts with each other. Do you know what I mean? So like one yes. of us playing the low chords, one of us playing the high chords, one of us playing kind of a middle part and then it was like, cool, now, you know, pass your part to the left almost. Do you know what I mean? And just doing that for ages until we had what felt like the fullest arrangement that we could because I wanted it to be a big chorus. So as it transpires, Ben's holding down the bottom end with some thick, chunky electric chords. I've kind of got the middle with the acoustic stuff and Matt's up on the top with the piano and it just, it feels like a, 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 a well-built building. You know, again, you talked about heavy at the top of the episode. This chorus is, it's not heavy in the sense of a hardcore or a heavy metal band, but just how big it is compared to the beginning <laughs> of the track. You know, it just swells there. For the listeners, uh, Rich Costi, uh, wow, he, he's got a, a great resume here. He's worked with Muse, Biffy Clyro. Uh, he mixed the Foo Fighters, Echo Silence, Patience and Grace. And, you know, I just wanted to, I wanted to bring him up because I always like to, to get into arrangements. And it sounds like yeah. this, arra- this arrangement to this track was was pretty much uh, done when you brought it to Rich. He he did that extra 10%, which I always talk about in this show. The difference between <laughs> yeah. a, a, a good song and a great song is that 10%. And a lot oh, of times totally. that, a lot of times it has to do with the producer. Up to this point of the fir- through the first chorus, and we're going to get to the second verse here in a moment, up to this point, did anything change with Rich or was, was this how the song was written? I, I th- I'm pretty sure that's how the song was written. I mean, the, Rich didn't really get into kind of like that much structure or lyrics or anything with this particular song. There were songs okay. on the record where he did. Yeah. Um, actually, funnily enough, I am working with Rich on a new record right now. I mean, I said it's awesome. a very early days, but we're, we're, we're going back into that again. I mean, one of the other things as well that Rich does, it, and as I'm remembering working with him again now, his attention to detail as, a, as an engineer, as a recording engineer, is second to none. And it, like in a way that is actually like kind of creepy sometimes. Do you <laughs> know what I mean? You'll do, a t- you'll do a take where like four people are playing and he'll stop you and he'll go, Frank, your G-string is quarter of a tone sharp. And you're like... <laughs> How do you hear that? Ex- excuse me? Um, and he's like... And, and so I go to tune it, and he goes, no, 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 don't tune it. Just pull the string once. And he go, And he goes, do another take. And you're like, what the fuck just happened? But, like, you know, he's, a, he's an incredible producer. I can't say enough good things about him in terms of, you know, saying all the tones and all the rest of it. I mean, there, yeah. there are parts of this song which you did definitely add to. I don't want to... Um, detracts in that in any way um, well i think i think uh, in, i think i think we're going to get to that as we go because i got right. a lot of notes okay. I, I think of what you're sure. talking about because there's so much <laughs> ear candy and, and, I, and i listened to this song uh, in, in headphones a couple times last night and i was just blown away by the production we get into the second verse and before we do this the first chorus <laughs> the second and third chorus of the song there's these ooze vocal ooze going on yeah are they there in the first chorus but they're mixed really 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 low or are they not there at all i can't tell if they're there they're not there at all in the first chorus but that funnily enough is very much a thing that rich added to the song okay okay Um, i didn't know if they were tucked in and we'll we'll talk about them in a moment the second verse here uh and i've been waking in the morning just like every other day and just like every boring blues song i get swallowed by the pain and so i fumble for your figure in the darkness just to make it go away 
But you're not lying there any longer, and I know that. That's my fault. So I've been pounding on the floor, and I've been crawling up the walls, and I've been dipping in my darkness for serotonin boosters, cider, and some kind of smelling salts. And <laughs> I'm going to have you set that up, and it's, that last line is, is awesome. Uh, I'm going to have you. you set that up in a second. But I wrote here in my notes that the band comes in here. It, it's not heavy like the chorus, you know, but, but the mm. band is. The, the drums are playing. It's not just acoustic guitar. The whole band's in. I notice yeah. often, the, and, and I'm wondering if this is a Rich thing, Rich Costy production. I notice it almost sounds like a hollow body, a Gretsch or something, and the left speaker doing this little counter melody uh, on the guitar. Waking in the morning just like every other day and just like every boring blues song I get swallowed by the pain and so I fumble for your figure in the darkness just to make it go away. Whose part was that? That's really cool. That's Ben's part, and Ben, um, who plays guitar in my band, is is a is he's an amazing guy. What I love about Ben is that he thinks about guitar in a way that I totally don't. So, for example, what not so much necessarily with this song, but a lot of the time, what will happen is I'll demo up a, a song that I've written with kind of like some guitar ideas on them. I like I could write a lead part for my own songs, like with my eyes closed, but like Ben will write something that is just makes no sense to me the first time I hear it, and that's the strength of it. Do you know what I mean? Is it's just like yeah. I would never have come up with that, and that's why you want to be in a band with people like that. Do you know what I mean? Is to broaden the palette that you're working it's with. Such a it's such a cool part. I I had to write it down because it just really stuck. I I. I I didn't notice it maybe the first two or three times I listened to the track and then I really mm. zoned in on it and I was like wow that just does it does something with what your melody's doing there they, they play off of each yeah. other it's really really well, interesting wh- what what that also goes to which we'll come to towards the end as well we'll talk about this again but like a big part of the music of this song is about ascent right about going up um yes. and in in part that is to do with there's a guy from austin texas uh called comrade who makes music under the name possessed by paul james um mm-hmm. and it's just completely insane like alt folk all country stuff i love him he's a good friend we toured together and he had a song called fathers and sons which it's i'm not saying that the song is like melodically the same or anything but like it just has this kind of like almost like an escher painting that just you know, like a constant, like Moiba strip kind of thing, where it's just always going upwards somehow. And I remember jamming that song with him and thinking, "That's really cool." And and because of the whole lyrical drive of the chorus about long road up to recovery and all that kind of thing uh, i wanted the song to have this kind of feeling of a sense so the main chords is just you know a um b minor a over c sharp and then d mm-hmm. and then the chorus lands on an e so it is got this kind of ascent thing going on with it but the, that that guitar part is an early um mention of an idea that comes in in the third verse uh, the final verse the whole song just keeps doing what you're saying. It, it's it's right. almost like you. It's almost like you're reading my notes back to me. This song just keeps <laughs> building. Well, no, it just keeps building subtly. It's not like a huge. Oh my gosh, there's this. It just it just keeps going up in the in this ascent. I love where you scream salts on smelling salts. That scream there. <laughs> I've been crawling up the walls and I've been dipping in my darkness with serotonin boosters, cider, and some kind of smelling salts. <laughs> Just that Thank one you. scream launches that second chorus, and now as I and I, I don't know how many times I've heard this song, Frank, but when I sit down, and this is why I love love doing this podcast, I listened to this the other night probably two or three times, and I'm like, 
why is the second chorus sound different than the first one? I didn't know it at first. And then I zoned in on those ooze. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It, so. it just ah, oh, it just makes the chorus. Now it's this extra part. It's subtle, but at the same time, they're not buried. Those ooze are that's why I had to go back to the first chorus and say, are they buried yeah, there? Yeah. Are they there? I love the ooze in this chorus. And again, the lyric is, it's a long road up to recovery from here, a long way back to the light, a long road up to recovery from here, a long way to making it right. And then the band does these stops, these stop breaks in, into the beginning of the bridge. The lyric is, and on the first night we met, you said, well, darling, let's make a deal. And then just for a very short time, the only time in the song, the drums go halftime for this second line only. And it's, if anybody ever asks us, let's just tell them that we met in jail. The first night we met, you said, well, darling, let's make a deal. If anybody ever asks us, let's just tell them that we met in jail. And that's the story that I'm sticking to like a stony face. What a cool little turnaround there. Was that written before Rich as well? <clears throat> Uh, no, yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I'm a, I have a bit of an obsession with the bridge, right? And this goes back, and this is actually worth mentioning too at the start of the song as well. I'm, a, I'm an old school and enormous Nirvana fan, and a lot of people think about Nirvana and they talk about Quiet Loud, right? About the fact they'd have a quiet version yeah, of Loud. Dynamics. Course, it's very effective. And that's very much what's happening at the start of this song. The other thing about Kirk Bain as a writer, which less people talk about, to, the, to their shame, um, is that, in my opinion, <laughs> Kurt Cobain was the absolute all-time world emperor king of the bridge, right? If you listen to most Nirvana songs, they have a great verse, they have a great chorus, and, it's, and then they have another verse, they have another chorus, and it's like, cool, we're going well. And then it's like, the bridge is the bit that fucking sorts the sheep from the goats. Do you know what I mean? It's just, yeah. it feels like, it feels like you found the turbo inject button on, on a car or some shit. It's like, and, and you get like slammed back into your seat a little bit. If you think about a song like Francis Farmer Has a Revenge in Seattle, the bridge of that song is the yeah. reason why that song is fucking perfect, is because it suddenly goes, and it's like, oh, we're a new territory. And that's the thing. It's like, I mean, very broadly speaking, it's like first verse, you make a state, you, you, you set the scene. First chorus, you make your own statement. Second verse, you expand on the scene. You remake your statement. Now you get to the bridge. Now you've got to take this somewhere else. You've got to say something else. You've got to, you've got to expand on the whole story. You can't just keep kind of trucking along. You've got to take it somewhere else. So this is a true story. That is, in fact, what was said to me the first time that we met. Let's just tell people we met in jail, which... Let's be honest, is one hell of a fucking line. And even at the time, <laughs> I remember I remember saying to her, I'm fucking putting that in a song one day. Um, and and, and, and you did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, and it's interesting. You know, at, at, at first I was almost saying after the jail part, when, when the band kicks back in, I was like, is is this a third verse? Which the third verse comes after this because this is a bridge. It is a departure. But it still feels like you're still in story mode. It's not a departure in a sense of a hmm. bridge like, oh, we went to a completely different thing. I love that about this bridge. Uh, and the lyric here is, and that, uh, and that's the story that I'm sticking to, like a stony-faced accomplice, but tonight I need to hear. 
some truth if I'm ever getting through this. Yeah, you once sent me a letter that said, if you're lost at sea, close your eyes and catch the tide, my dear, and only think of me. Well, darling, now I'm sinking, and I'm as lost as lost can be, and I was hoping you could drag me up from down here towards my recovery. That's that's awesome. That whole lost Thank at you. sea that whole lost yeah. at sea line. Also, also true, incidentally, there was a moment in time when um, I was... Uh, it, that was later on in the relationship, but I was, um, funnily enough, I was making a music video for a song uh, called If Ever I Stray, which is from England Keep My Bones. And the music video is me fanning about in the sea with a chair and a guitar, and it was brutally cold and an awful shitty day. I basically had to wade into the sea playing guitar about eight times, and it sucked. And um, <laughs> sort of in, in, in between takes, I was texting with my partner, and, and she sent me... Um, she was out and about somewhere and she got like a piece of chalk and wrote on a wall, like a kind of abandoned wall somewhere. She wrote, when you're lost at CCC, think of me, 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 and sent me a photo of this. And, and I was like, wow, that's cool as shit. And so, and, but, and again, that, that kind of, uh, that fed into the song, that imagery. No, it's it, it's awesome. Then we get into what I'm calling the musical bridge. And I love this part because it's only 12. I wrote it here. 12 seconds of relief from vocals <laughs> because this you know, song, this song is you're just getting hammered with information in a in a great way. But yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's 12 seconds of, of relief that, that I think is needed here. I think it's great. Oh, and it, and it gives me a breather when we play it live. It means I can go and like, sort of lean against something for a bit and, and pant. Uh, I mean, it's funny. We, we haven't mentioned this yet. I mean, like one of the things with the lyrical approach to this song was it's very kind of machine gun. It's very sort of precise. Um, yes. uh, it's, very, it's very dense, should we say. And one of the things with that, to go back, like that's a thing I did all the time in Million Dead. I had a bit of a rep for doing that in Million Dead of being the guy. It's not quite like rapping per se, but it was very like and it's very rhythmically specific um and all the rest of it and um i hadn't really done that on any songs in the preceding four solo albums i've made maybe one or two but i sort of shied away from it as a stylistic approach because i didn't want to be covering the same ground that i covered in my band and it was sort of around this time that i was really starting to chill out about that kind of thinking it was like you know what million dead made two albums this is my fifth album like i can fucking do what i want you know it's like so i kind of wrote the song in that style with this kind of very very dense rhythmic poetic delivery and actually all credit to rich costi here that the one thing we heard back from somebody at the label kind of going maybe there's too many words in this song (laughs) and 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 i was like fuck you yeah but but of course, thankfully, Rich actually stepped in and said, you're out of your fucking mind. This song has exactly the right number of words. I mean, there is a lot of words, and that's why I brought up this musical bridge. Not a lot of words in a bad way, but just these 12 seconds. And it almost sounds like some strings come in. Or I don't I couldn't tell if they're strings or if they're like an octave guitar pushed back. There's, it's, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a mellotron strings part. Okay, okay. It's, it's killer. And it's kind of like a piano solo. The piano's up a couple dB yeah. in the mix. Uh, it, it's just kind Definitely. of, it's kind of feel good. It's rocking. And then we yeah. come into a verse three where it breaks back down. It's just the tambourine and the guitar. And you come yeah. back in with, if you could just give me a sign, yeah, just a subtle little glimmer, some suggestion that you'd have me if I could only make me better. Then I would stand a little stronger as I walk a little taller all the time. And 
on the word time here, it sounds like almost, you know how you strum the strings at the headstock of a guitar and it gives that creepy, almost yeah. uh, a horror movie sound? Is that what that is? Yep, that is exactly what that is. Yeah, it's a little, <laughs> a little stronger as I walk a little taller all the time. Which again, that's Ben's speciality. Ben is Ben is the creepy beep noise dude in the band. Like it's we so we fun. have moments in yeah we have moments in songs where I'm like this song needs some noise at this point, and I'm not even gonna fucking try and do it because I play in a band with the king of guitar noise. So I'm just like Ben, over to you, and he goes and it sounds great. It's so freaking cool, man. <laughs> I, I thought that's what that was, but I could I couldn't really tell if it was a keyboard noise. But it just uh, again this song's on an ascent, and this is just another little little thing that. Uh, Ah, it adds to it. Well, that's what I was going to say. So bring, picking that back up again, the thing, one of the things that happens here, and everybody's in on this, I, th- I think it was kind of my idea to try and work it out, but it was definitely a collective thing with the band. So the, as I say, the bass line, the, the, the root notes of the chords in the verse are A, B, C sharp, D. Mm-hmm. And then Tarrant, my bass player, who's a fucking genius, like and in the second half of this, rather than going back down to the A, goes up to the E. So he keeps going up. Right, and then simultaneously, Ben is doing a similar thing. He's going up the scale and up the scale, but at a different kind of rate. So the two of them are kind of two different. It's like kind of waveforms that sort of match every two kind of thing. It's like everyone's kind of building and building and building and building and building until the massive snare drum fill and the high note. I can convince you because broken people can get better if they really want to, or at least that's what I have to tell myself if I am hoping to. Yeah, well, and it, it, it's like a rub that works. Sometimes rubs and music don't work. And let me tell you, your bassist is insane. And on that Letterman special, he just his tone was he was just killing it. Oh yeah, when you when you guys played yeah. on Letterman, it was it was so so awesome. Uh, the second half here, the drums, the band is back in uh, because I know you are a cynic, but I think I can convince you, yeah, because broken people can get better if they really want to. Or at least that's what I have to tell myself if I am hoping to survive. And again, here's a build. This survive, you got this long holdout, and then you get high at the end. Uh, Again, (laughs) was was that your idea? Was that something rich? Uh, I I always no. That was my idea. I mean, I have to say, it's a funny old thing. Like I'm now 39 years old, and I made this record 10 no nine years ago. I made this record, and um, your vocal range changes as you get older, right? Yes. Like when 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 I wrote and when we recorded this song. that high A was a piece of piss. It was like, yeah, fucking survive. I'll do it. I'll do it at seven in the morning. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Um, these days now, it's it's definitely it's become a bit of a joke in the band when that bit's coming up because uh, there's a little breather halfway through that third verse. I tend to turn around to the others and kind of like sort of do this a little bit, cross yeah. myself and sort of. Let's see how this one's going to go, because it's not just the high note, it's the high note at the end of quite a long line already, which means that your breathing's already pretty spent out by the time you get there, and it was just like, Catherine 2, and, and like um, because this song was this song was a big success for me. Like I kept having to play it on like breakfast radio shows on oh, tour in America. The worst. You've got you've got a hangover. You've got tour voice anyway. It's seven a.m. and there's no audience to kind of bolster you up. And it's like cool. Now sing a massive long high A. And it was just like oh <laughs> yeah really and, 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 and you're much much like the song itself. I did this to myself. Yes, and 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 you're having that moment as a singer, and you're going. Why did I write that part? Not to mention, you know, you, you had mentioned something earlier in the episode about <laughs> t- 
talking about these lyrics and having so many of them. Isn't it a grand thing when we write a song like this and then we don't realize how bad of an idea it was till we go to sing it live? And you're like, what the hell oh, did I yeah, do? Oh, yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> well, this is, why, this is why playing songs in live is a good idea because as we all did before our first album, because that's what you do. You're a band, you play out, and then the songs kind of make sense, and then you write a bunch of shit for your second record, start touring it and go, Jesus Christ, what have I done? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm in the middle of that right now with my with my forthcoming next record. There's a song which I'm not actually even sure. I kind of wrote it. I'm not even sure if I can sing it once in the studio, let alone whilst playing guitar. So might have to think about that one a little bit. Well, you know, we, we get that high note here on Survive and it just lifts for this last chorus. The high, I'm calling the ooze, ooh. The high ooh yeah. vocals are, are present here in chorus three. Again, it's a long road up to recovery from here, a long way back to the light, a long road up to recovery from here, a long way to making it right. And then it goes into this outro part. You know, this chorus is never doubled in the song. The, the main the main chorus which mm. which is kind of interesting because it's such a catchy chorus I could see that being repeated yet you go to an outro here all three lines are the same here darling sweet lover won't you help me to recover and you say that three times and then the very last line is darling sweet lover and then just you acapella you end the song and it just it just gives this personal touch like again that singer song you're speaking to the to the listener speaking to me and you say one day this will all be over. It's so killer yeah. how it ends, man. Thank you. And and, and well, that that outro idea here was was that written uh, uh, specifically for the song when you when you wrote it, or was that something yeah. you thought? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, so the the other thing that musically the song does at this point is all of the kind of ascent stuff that I've been talking about, where kind of like let's say bass lines or guitar parts run up the scale, have all been over the kind of the verse part where it goes where it starts on the A. Chorus part start is is E to D, um, mm-hmm. and thus far everyone's just been playing E to D. In the outro part, Tarrant essentially does the same thing he does in that third verse on the chorus part. So it starts on E, then he goes to an F sharp, then he goes to a G sharp, then he goes to an A, and it's so you it's kind of reconstituted the ascent idea for one more time around in the end section, you know, which again gives it that kind of last bit of kind of blast kind of feeling. And and I guess the kind of I'm I'm not often somebody who will repeat a line that many times in one row kind of thing but it's supposed to be a plea do you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like it's supposed to be desperate it's supposed to be pleading i guess would be the word and and interestingly what that brings up is one, one of the things about this record which i i don't often remember as much as i should and i'm remembering now is that like it wasn't just a breakup record written from the point of view of the bad guy there was definitely an ambivalence within me at the time as to whether or not we might actually get back together at some point given another go and there's <laughs> there are parts of this album and particularly this song which are very much kind of like but if you wanted to uh you know yeah. go for a drink sometime um <laughs> and see where we're at uh that would the, be cool um, the, the, and glimmer, of course, the glimmer of hope in your mind only exactly she told me to go fuck myself and yeah. so she should have done um <laughs> well uh, no and i i love this last line because this could mean so many things frank one day this will all be over. So you're basically saying to the listener, to yourself, that I'm still in, the, in this shit here. One day this is going to be over, and that day is not right now. You know, And it right. also means one, one day this will all be over. Like, maybe I'll be back together with her. 
Right, or maybe we'll be free and clear and, and not calling each other at four o'clock in the morning. And yeah. actually, you know, um, we do, she and I, we chat maybe once a year kind of thing these days and she's doing well and there's no bad blood between us at this point nine years later. So that's a good thing to be able to say and we're both happily settled with other people and hooray for, for, for that. But um, Good for you. Yeah, it, it, there's definitely, a, yeah, there was a, there's a kind of ambiguity at the end there which was intentional. Let me tell you one more story about this song which I think is worth throwing in here. So we finished the song, recorded it, label said this could be first single, I was like, yeah, sweet, that works for me. And we put it out there. And it, it uh, that was a point in my career where it really felt like I couldn't make any wrong steps. Like everything I put out, people got really excited about it. And that was really cool. So we'd had this big album in my bones. What's coming next? Here's recovery. Everyone went, fucking A. But um, in the time when it first came out, I was in the States, like, because this was a period of my time in my career when everyone was very keen on me being in America all the time because it's a huge market and blah, blah, blah. So we were out in America where my career was not as far along as it was in the UK at the time. In the UK, we were kind of doing large theatres or small arenas kind of thing. Mm -hmm. In the States, we were still kind of doing the grunt work, of, of which I am proud and which I enjoyed doing. Yeah. But so we did like three months or something in the States touring, just playing fucking every state every town playing to 500 people a night doing two breakfast radio shows doing an evening in store really doing the work you know what i mean but during this whole period of time we were out of the uk and now the song was big in the uk i remember a friend of mine texting me and saying that he'd been driving in england and he changed through he'd cycled through three radio stations and that song had been on every single fucking one of them and he like texted me and was like i'm so sick of you like <laughs> so why are you doing this to me but anyway all of this all of this was kind of academic to me do you know what i mean it was sort of happening over there and we were over here and that was fine and it was one of the more kind of the moving moments in my career is we got back to England finally for the UK tour for the album and the first show was at the Manchester Academy which is 2,500 people and it was oh, sold yeah. out and that was cool and you know the first third of the set was playing songs from previous records and that was going well and everybody was having fun and then I started playing Recovery which was the first time we ever played it in the UK and I knew it had been on the radio but it was like I don't know, maybe this, this, you know how you structure a set list, it's like, well, better pad the new one out with some old favourites, just so that people oh, don't lose attention too much, yeah. or whatever. And so we'd kind of done that, and we got to that song, and I remember playing the opening chords, and the fucking entire room was word perfect on the yeah. first verse, and I was just like, what the fuck? And then yeah. we got to the first drum fill, and the room exploded like very few times I've ever seen in my life. Like people were just ricocheting off the walls, um, the whole room bouncing, whatever. And like me and Ben, my guitar player, kind of looked at each other and were just like, what the fuck is going on? And like it was so magical. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, oh shit, this has kind of landed over here. And the next night we rewrote the set list and put it somewhere kind of more appropriate, should we say? I got goosebumps, man. And that, I, I love that story for a number of reasons. I mean, here you were in the interim. You're over in the States slogging it out. You're doing morning radio. You're, As you said, you're putting in the work. You're doing the 500-seat club in Lincoln, Nebraska on a Tuesday night. You know, you're, 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 you're dogging it out. You get back to your home turf. The song blew up in radio while you were gone. And then yeah. just, you're, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I do this. I would put out a new song. You got to put the, the hits around it, you know, because people are going to take yeah, a piss yeah. break. Go get a fucking beer, you know. And, and <laughs> exactly. here, here you launch into recovery and I could see the place going berserk because it was at that point a hit. Yeah, it, and it was kind of the first time I'd ever really had like a radio hit in my life anyway, because like, I mean, I'd had some radio play before then, don't get me wrong, but it was like, that was my first like all the fucking time daytime radio show song that I ever had in my career. And it was just like, 
holy shit. It was kind of that thing I'm sure, sure you know what I'm talking about. We almost fucked the song up. Do you know what I mean? Because we were like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, ha! Huh! Um, and, and like, yeah, just kind of getting a bit freaked out by it. But it was, it was a magical moment. And like, the song will always have an extremely um, special place in my heart for that reason. Yeah, no, I saw again. I saw it on YouTube. You guys played like a tea in the park, and just there's like sixty thousand people jumping in unison. It's just such a such a great uh, great feeling. So uh, once again, I just want to uh, you know thank you for taking the time out uh, for 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 being on the show and and breaking this down and 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 congratulations on all your success and continued thank success. You, man. Uh, at th- at this point, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with with any uh, uh, future stuff um, going on with you and the Sleeping Souls? Are you yeah, solo? Got uh, yeah, um, I've got a. I've Got, we are working on a new record um i have a new drummer these days who's awesome and the new record's going to be pretty kind of aggressive would be the word like in your face punk rock record like um I, it's time do you know what i mean like okay. to do something kind of so some, something aggressive it'll be out sort of towards the end of next year but uh sorry not next year at the end of this year i should yes. say hopefully i mean obviously who the fuck knows right now but um and i miss the states like you wouldn't believe and i hope that you and i will share a beer again in the near future Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is submit your song and bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured band is Hell's Ditch from Lincoln, England. I chose them today, not only because I like their sound, but they were handpicked for Frank Turner's One Foot Before the Other playlist, so I thought it was fitting to include them in this episode. You can find their music on all the streaming services, and here's a snippet of their song, The Likes of Us. and Chris. Well, I knew before that one started that it was going to be a great one, and I was not wrong. Yeah, he's uh, quite the conversationalist, Frank is. People that love Frank Turner absolutely love Frank Turner, and I know why. Everything about him from his lyrics to the music to the person that he is is great. Uh, I think that if you were lukewarm on Frank Turner and you listen to this podcast alone, I think you're going to become many times over more of a fan of Frank Turner. Yeah, you know, when I had met him some years back with Fat Mike, he was just so, so down to earth. And and uh, I, I was a fan at that point. But my my respect level for him just went through the roof with this episode. Just so down to earth. Such a such a great, uh, great conversation. And the story behind the song was, was awesome. And I really like how you turned on your... Uh, 
British vocabulary when you, <laughs> when you got on here. I heard I I made a note of all the words you used. <laughs> I call them a cheeky twat. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you said yeah, you said twat, you said bloke, you said pint. <laughs> you're you really know how to make people feel at home on the podcast. Well, it, it's something sure. I didn't I didn't get into it with him and uh you know, as a lot of the listeners know, uh Less Than Jake has spent a lot of time in the UK. It's I've always felt like it's my my home away from home. So I've gotten used to the vernacular over the years, but uh this song has so many English, what's the word? Is it colloquialisms? Uh, sure, <laughs> uh, sure. Just uh, you know, just the, the the first line of the song, uh, blacking out in a strange flat. You know, we don't really call uh, apartments flats here in, in the states. Uh, you know, he talks about uh, a cider in the in the uh, second verse. Lot, lots of cool little things here, and uh, it was it was just just cool to talk to him. Speaking of that first line of the song, I really like that he talked about having an amazing opening line of the song to really reel people in right off the bat. I think that's the first person that has brought that up on the podcast. And I thought that was a, one of my favorite little tidbits of this conversation was him talking about that because that's a really cool thing to think about when you're going into the songwriting process yeah and especially as a singer songwriter and where he's coming with this imagery of telling a story you have to you got to go for hook line and sinker right off the bat or you know you're going to lose them by uh, by the chorus and you don't want that i love that you talked about them playing on letterman you said that was always like a dream to play on letterman dude i used to as a kid tape letterman every night so i could watch letterman like as like a 13 year old that's how much i like letterman so that's really cool that uh you know that he got to do that i'm sure he doesn't take that for granted like you and i are like in awe of that oh yeah know? no and he even said that that's a big deal to to english folks and i i didn't know that i never really talked to anybody in england about uh, david letterman or the late night talk shows in general here in the states that are just such a thing that's woven into the fabric of our society it's a bit it's a big deal still to plan a late night show that's that's a, that's a good one but uh, you know it's funny on that letterman episode he looked nervous i don't know if you noticed when he walked up to the mic he looked uh, you know but as soon as he from that first chord it's like just the song took over at that point and they just kind of they they sounded great on it it was it was awesome that song has such a giant sing-along chorus and when he was detailing when he played that song for the first time back in england after the song had blown up that story about that is amazing and i can't imagine an entire you know packed crowd of people singing that together just like you said, it kind of gives you chills thinking about that. Yeah, you know, I, I have only really, you know, Less Than Jake never had a real big uh, career radio, but BCN in Boston was playing History of a Boring Town like you know, two times an hour uh, all day long back in like 98, 99. And we got up there to play a show. And I remember, I think it was what is now the house of blues. I think it was called the Avalon at the time, like 2000 people It was sold out and we broke in, you know, the rest of the set was great. But when we broke into that song, every person in that audience knew those lyrics. I could totally relate to what he was saying. And it's just, it's such a great feeling. It's uh, almost like this extra bit of validation as an artist that just, you know, to, to know that your song is, is uh, that accepted by the masses. There is nothing better in the world as a person in a band or an artist to hear a crowd of people singing words that you wrote yeah <laughs> it's it's just it's incredible so you know i i know you don't even have to really explain i imagine that everyone from people that have experienced it to people that have sang into a brush in their bedroom in the mirror <laughs> uh just picture that moment of someone screaming your words back at you because they mean that much to them that they 
they want to sing them back at you. And uh, I did think it was funny that Frank talked about, you know, these were self sort of self-deprecating lyrics, you know, where he was the bad guy. So he didn't know how to feel about people singing them back at him. And I, I uh, just one of those, dude, I just smiled through this entire conversation. I thought it was great. I laughed, smiled. It was just, it was awesome. No, it, was, it was a lot of fun. The other interesting thing that he said was the label thought that there was too many words and I thought it was cool that Rich Costi, the producer, stuck up and said, no, you're friggin' crazy. This is perfect. But it is interesting and I brought it up that that little musical bridge, the little, I'm calling it the piano solo, is the only 12 seconds in the whole song where there is no lyrics. Just, I mean, there is a lot of information in this song but it works. And again, not an excruciatingly long song. It's only three and a half minutes, but this song goes by so quickly. And I always say that's testament to, to great songwriting. It just comes on and it seems like it's over and you want to hear it again. Hey, sometimes having a lot of words in a song makes it that much more fun when you know them all. Uh -huh. <laughs> if that, if that makes any sense. And I don't think this song really falls into that category, but when you think of songs like it's the end of the world as we know it, or we didn't start the fire. If you know every word to that song, you feel like you really accomplished something and you can't wait to sing along to it. And you know, to a lesser extent, Dent, like this doesn't have as many lyrics as that, but it's a lot of lyrics. And if you know them, it's even that much more fun to sing along to them. Yeah, you know, and I brought it up at the top of the episode. Uh, I've loved each song that we broke down in the podcast in its own way. And I even have a deeper appreciation for recovery now. I love this song in a different light than I did even, uh, you know, an hour before we did the episode. It's it's really cool to be able to analyze them and, and learn something new and have a different perspective on a song that you've loved for so long. I love when people are no holds barred about talking what the song is about. Like, yeah, I broke up with this girl. Here's what, here's what went down. Uh, I was kind of the asshole. Um, I did this weird drug. I did, you know, I love, I love hearing these details. It's honest. It's not like, uh, you know, beating around the bush about what the song's about. I think that's awesome. And I, I love it when people come on here and there's, super honest so uh props to frank turner for that and also props to frank turner for multiple times during the episode dropping counting crows august and everything after the first album because that is my and i told him this after we were done that is my all-time favorite album and i was uh real happy to hear that it sounds like it's also one of Frank's. Yeah, and that was uh, re really cool of him to, to not only say that, but then tell us that uh, he's friends with Adam Duritz and that he he may be able to put in a little nudge to him to get on the podcast. We're not going to hold you to that, Frank, but it would be awesome. Yeah, it sure would be. And speaking of the Counting Crows, in their very popular song, Mr. Jones, they actually have a line that says, everybody want to pass his cats. We all want to be big, big stars, but we got different reasons for that, which just reminds me of this month's charity. That's right. This month's charity is the Kitty Corner Cat Rescue and Lounge located in Everett, Washington. Since their start in 2016, they have saved over 2,000 cats and kittens from high-kill shelters and cared for them until they found their forever homes. Please head over to KristaMakesADifference.com and uh, give whatever you can give. We'd, we'd really appreciate it. This is a wonderful organization. You got to help the cats, man. You got to help the cats. Just go to KristaMakesADifference.com if you got an extra buck or five or ten, you're helping out cats. Cats rule. I sleep with two cats on top of me every night, just so you all know. <laughs> that is the absolute truth. They literally sleep on top of me. I have feel like I have a lot in common with cats. And if you feel the same way, or if you just love animals in general, or if you're just a nice person, go to KristaMakesADifference.com. Otherwise, 
this is a really exciting week for us, man. It is. There's a couple. Uh, there's two other cats that need your help. <laughs> yeah, that's you and I. <laughs> that is that is true. Uh, a couple of cool <laughs> cats uh, named Chris and Chris who just happen to make this podcast that you've now enjoyed 46 episodes of, of or something like that. A lot of people have asked us, "Hey, man, what are you going to do a Patreon? Or what are you going to have some bonus content? You know what?" We're finally listening, and we are launching our VIP program this week. It's through a site called Supporting Cast. You can go to chrisdemakes.com, and what you're going to get right off the bat, there's a couple different levels, uh, but you're going to get an extra episode every week. That's right, and we're trying to... uh uh, you know, we're, we're launching this right now and we want to hear your ideas as well as this goes along. Uh, please join our Facebook group. Krista makes a podcast Facebook group. You join in there. Give us your suggestions and tell us uh, tell us what you want from us in this, because we, we have a bunch of cool stuff. We're rolling out right off the bat. But uh, as you know, we welcome your suggestions. Yeah, we uh, we have a new bonus episode every week. It's called the after party. There's the after party, which is every other week and the after party deluxe where you get an episode every week. But I was pretty excited because, uh, Chris, I asked you to write a theme song for the after party and then you sent it to me and I was like, I always knew the guy from less than Jake would one day write a song about our show that we have together. And I feel like, you know, as if people aren't excited enough, I'm sure everyone's just flipping out right now hearing this, but as if you weren't excited enough, I wanted to give everyone a preview of the theme song. Welcome to the after party. Ready, set, let's go. Welcome to the after party. The show after the show. Learn a little something new. Well, Chris, I, I, I don't know if it's as good as the Krista Makes a Podcast theme song. Maybe that's the B-side, but uh, I tried my best. Yeah, dude, it's awesome. And <laughs> I think everyone's going to enjoy the show. We have a lot of stories to tell. We have a lot of things to talk about. And you're just going to have to check it out. Uh, you know, like I said, go to KristaMakes.com. Krista, not KristaMakesADifference.com. You should go there, too. But this is just KristaMakes.com. And you can check out the different levels for the cost of buying us a beer every month if you enjoy the podcast you know we put a lot of time and effort into this and this is going to allow us to take this podcast even to the next level and uh yeah if if you like the podcast and you just want to buy us a coffee or a beer per month that's that's all it would cost you and uh you'll get a lot of extra episodes and a lot of other stuff too that we are gonna figure out as we go that's right. We're going to be launching uh, a bunch of new podcast merchandise. And with the different uh, levels, uh, tiers in the supporting cast group, you'll be able to get discounts on that merchandise. So again, go over to ChrisDemakes.com and check that out. We'd, uh, we'd appreciate your support. And uh, speaking of support, please head over to the revamped YouTube page for Less Than Jake. There's a bunch of cool new stuff over there. Head over and check it out. And please hit that subscribe button. We'd really appreciate Love it. Love that subscribe. Click and love that five-star review if you want to give our podcast one of those. That's right. And uh, again, head over to Facebook. Join the Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group. The more, the merrier. We have a lot of fun over there. And I want to thank this week's guest, Frank Turner, for being on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. And we'll see you all next week. 
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media.